there's construction going on in the building and the contractor promised me yesterday that he would stop everything and they're not going to drill or knock or do anything like that to you. I've disconnected phones and uh, so it's all for you. I'm Rufus Griscom and this is The Next Big Idea. I'm in a separate space because we have construction going on next to our apartment in New York. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the dynamic. So whereabouts in New York? I'm currently in the meatpacking district, which... Oh, that's very nice. ...has really been reinvented. Of all the, I've lived in New York City now for 20 years, and no neighborhood has changed more dramatically than the meatpacking district, which used to be a place where meat was packed, <laughs> as you may remember. Right, yeah. Each week on the show, I talk with big thinkers whose ideas might just change the way you see the world. But we like to ease into it. How's the weather today? The weather, it's beautiful. Oh my gosh, Antonio, it's a perfect day. It's 73 degrees and I'm feeling homeostasis. Good, that's exactly the idea. Homeostasis, the body's silent striving for balance. The right temperature, the right pH, the right nutrient levels. It's a word I probably learned in high school biology, but hadn't said out loud in quite some time until this conversation with Antonio Damasio. Homeostasis is what keeps us alive. But in his illuminating new book, Feeling and Knowing, Antonio makes the remarkable assertion that homeostasis is also what makes us feel. Our feelings, he says, are sensory signals that our homeostasis is out of whack. If your nutrient levels are off, you feel hungry. If your internal temperature drops, you feel cold. As it happens, our emotions use the same system of visceral homeostatic signals. When you're afraid, your muscles tense. When you're pissed off, your heart speeds up. Feelings, Antonio writes, are like, quote, a musical score that accompanies our thoughts and actions. The music analogy is unsurprising if you visited Antonio's home in Los Angeles, which our producer Caleb did to record this conversation. Caleb says the sunlit floor-to-ceiling bookshelves are crowded with classical music CDs and biographies of famous composers. Antonio is a Renaissance man. Born in Portugal, he's fluent in at least four languages. He's an avid reader of fiction, a student of modern philosophy, and an enthusiastic collector of contemporary art. This on top of his day job as a neuroscientist, professor, co-director of the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC, and best-selling author of books like Descartes' error. But what's amazing about Antonio is that despite his elevated station and serious day job, he's a remarkably warm, affable guy. Maybe it's the California sunshine. We're looking at the Santa Monica Mountains out of our windows. We're having a great time here. And the Getty Museum might be within view. I've, I've been listening to some of your podcasts and I've heard about your oh, your yeah, childhood yeah, yeah. Um, interest in um, detective stories and Los Angeles. Where did you hear about that? I'd heard about it in some interview he'd done, but Caleb also spotted a few paperback copies of Raymond Chandler novels in Antonio's office. Antonio attributes his attraction to neuroscience to his childhood obsession with detective novels. And indeed, our attempt to understand consciousness today is an early chapter of a detective novel. Some believe it's a fantasy story imbued with spiritual magic. Some believe the evolutionary leap to consciousness, by which I mean the experience of being in our skulls, the fact that it feels like anything at all, is so improbable that it only makes sense if all matter is conscious. 
and others see it as an entirely understandable progression of human evolution that will make perfect sense once we have patiently completed the story. Once we've met all the characters, gauged their motives, and discarded red herrings, we'll say, of course. Antonio Damasio is in this latter camp. He believes that the subject of his study for decades now, feelings, are at the core of our conscious experience. And Caleb, we're recording on your side and all's well. Yeah, we are rolling. So whenever you're ready to commence. Wonderful. Well, in, in spite of my limitations as a sound engineer, I do believe that we're recording on this side as well. So here we go. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Antonio Damasio, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. My pleasure. It's such a thrill for me to have you on the show, Antonio. I'm a big fan of your books, and I was delighted to read your latest hot off the presses, Feeling and Knowing, Making Minds Conscious. Part of what I enjoy about your writing, Antonio, is that you're an eminent scientist. You run the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC. You've done important research on the role emotions play in social cognition and decision-making. It can also be said, reading your books, that you love language. You write lyrically, sometimes poetically. It feels to me like you bring an artistic sensibility to neuroscience. You sometimes describe human evolution as beautiful, sometimes even fabulously beautiful. <laughs> and I get the sense that you want your readers, people in general, to see the poetry and hear the music in the science of how we got here and what we're made of. Is that how you see it? Uh, that's absolutely how I see it. And uh, it's a very deliberate thing, but it's d deliberate, but natural. It's something that I do naturally. I want to do it that way um, with no preconception. But then I've discovered that I enjoy it and I've discovered that, that it pleases me to make people see the immense beauty of science in general and biology in particular and within the biology, the neurobiology. And uh, it, it really is such a marvelous world that it would be a tremendous waste uh, not to see the beauty and to just see the technical aspects of the incredible construction. And I think in this book, I had that opportunity because that's how I conceived the book. And uh, my editor and I were in agreement that it would be a different book so that I could do in maybe 200, 250 pages what I normally think I do with 400. Uh, so that was quite a trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said in the opening pages that you compare your craft to that of a poet, writing that your aim with this book was to, quote, do what good poets and sculptors do, chip away at the non-essential, and then chips more, practice the art of haiku. So this was meant to be a more accessible uh, book that gets to the thrust of the core ideas that you consider to be most important. Yes, definitely. Uh, but at the same time, something that I told my editor, um, I will not be able to do this and have fun with it and enjoy it if I don't put all the new ideas that I have and all the new results in it at the same time. So it's a tricky 
book. On the one hand, it's spared down, and it may appear to some people that it's simpler. I hope it is simpler, more accessible. But it's full of interesting ideas and interesting results. So the way I explain what feelings are and the connection to consciousness is actually quite advanced in relation to my last book. Interesting. Since I finished writing the book, there are two or three articles, three actually, that have appeared in the regular scientific literature that already advance in relation to this. So that's really what gives me joy in this work, is this possibility of getting better, the possibility of getting closer to the mark that you've established, which is to understand certain processes in this case, understand the process of feeling, how it has an impact in our lives, and how it produces this marvelous thing, which is consciousness, and which I think, contrary to many people's ideas, it is something actually understandable and something that we can get to without having to suffer forever with a mystery that is unresolvable. Consciousness is a topic that is controversial and lively these days. And it's something that we all have a first-person exposure to, and consequently, mm -hmm, probably yeah. some opinions about. One of the liveliest debates in neuroscience in recent years is this discussion of whether or not the emergence of consciousness is what philosopher David Chalmers has called a hard problem. And in effect, I think his claim is that it's counterintuitive that consciousness should feel like something. We can envision versions of ourselves that would have all the same behaviors, but would effectively be, be zombies without a conscious experience. Do you see this book as a response to this ongoing debate? Oh, yes, definitely. In a very quiet way, because it's not, you know, there are two ways of responding to the Chalmers idea of a hard, insoluble problem. And one, of course, is to produce all the data and have it very clearly presented and argued. The other way is to, is a little bit of a stealth way, and is to present it candidly through what I think is the key to consciousness, which is actually feeling. And what I want people to realize is that when you have pain, for example, the pain, of course, is going to be very important for you because it will make you do something about that pain. If you have immense tooth pain, for example, you, you're going to go to the dentist and try to take care of it. And it actually can save your life. It's critical to mm, you. Yeah. Now, why is it critical? It's critical because it is conscious. It's naturally conscious. So feelings are the clear example of something that emerges naturally. And that thing that emerges is consciousness, which allows you to know, allows you, especially now for us, with, equipped with a broad mind and a big supporting brain, it allows us to know what to do. So it's a way I see feeling as the inaugural example of consciousness. It's really the inauguration of consciousness in the history of life. And it makes a complete change from what went on before. Up to the point where we have feeling, what we really have is creatures that can be intelligent, can govern their lives intelligently, but they do so without knowing it. 
So when a paramecium or a bacterium chooses, quote unquote, the best environment to get proper temperature, proper nutrition, and survive for as long as its genome has allowed it to, that bacterium does not know that it is doing that. It's behaving intelligently, but covertly. And the big news is that once feelings emerge, and they clearly emerged very early, then something changes and it allows the organism that feels and that is conscious of that feeling, allows that organism to do something important in relation to what comes next in its life. And it can be pain, but it can be a simpler thing such as hunger or thirst, a sense of malaise, it can be joy, uh, or it can be a great sense of well-being, which, by the way, is a very informative thing because it will allow you to do other things, such as taking care of uh, uh, your life, but not in a way that refers to protecting your body and curating your body at the moment. It allows you, for example, to fall in love and procreate. So it's completely life-transforming. The minute you have feelings appear in nature, and I'm sure they didn't appear with us first, they appear with other complex animals first, things changed for those animals. And they've changed for us. And now that we're equipped with this marvelous great mind, it still is there orienting us. And the other thing that I just would add, and then I'll stop, is the idea that feeling is not only the inaugural event for consciousness, but it remains the core event in relation to the consciousness we have of everything else. So I know now I'm talking to you. I know that you are in a different city. I'm looking around. I have a colleague of yours here. I hear sounds. I see things. All of that is in my consciousness only because it is referred to myself. It is referred to my organism. And I wouldn't be able to have that reference without feeling. So feeling is not only the first, the inauguration of consciousness, but also the hook. It creates the core self, which allows me to have experiences. And my experiences go from the trivial of my life right now, of my body, which is fine and dandy as far as I know, and of the rest that is around me, which includes you, and which includes Caleb, and which includes the mountains and the, the scenery around us. So it's very interesting that the possibility of experience, the possibility of subjectivity is hinging on the possibility of having feeling, which generates this reference to your own unique body, your own living body. So that's why I'm excited about this. Aren't you? Yes, I, I am. And I, I mean, and it's, I think it's an extraordinary point that you said that the hard problem of consciousness is really the wrong problem in the sense that the question people are asking is how did our brains, our cognitive faculties, create this conscious feeling? And your argument is, well, no, actually, there's been a four billion year evolution that has resulted in humans that began with being, then feeling, then knowing. And the feeling stage has been with us and our ancestors for a very, very long time. Exactly. And it's critical 
to this emergence. I know now, Antonio, having had the great pleasure of reading this book in the last couple of weeks and listening to all sorts of wonderful podcast conversations you've had, that if somebody wants to upset you, which is not easy to do, you seem like a very reasonable person, they could say, feelings are useless, <laughs> which I've heard you refer to as a monstrous claim. Absolutely monstrous. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get right into it. We'd love to hear your first big idea. The variety of our feelings is quite wide. Feelings can convey pain or hunger or thirst. Feelings can convey well-being or malaise, desire or compassion, sadness or joy. But the insight here is that the contents of feelings always correspond to states of the body. Whatever the message is that feelings deliver in our minds, that message always includes, in mental terms, a specific state that is now unfolding in our bodies within our all-too-mortal flesh. But feelings go beyond that message, as we shall see. They are not simple perceptions of the body state. So, whether you are in pain or thirsty, joyful or sad, your body adopts a particular physical and chemical profile. Feelings correspond to that profile. Feelings correspond to the changes that happen in our internal organs or in the thick of our skin under the influence of particular chemical molecules. To some extent, feelings are a translation, quote-unquote, of body states in mental terms. But not only. How are those translations fabricated? And here's the answer. First, cells in the body interact with myriad nerve endings placed in every nook and cranny of our bodies and delivered to the brain a particular configuration of blended signals corresponding to the body at that moment. Second, the brain uses those signals to assemble three-dimensional maps which result in mental images related to the state of the body. A third and amazing fact is that on the basis of the blended images of brain and body, the brain talks back to the body. This talking back has a purpose. In case the life process is veering off course, the talking back helps adjust the body state and regain a homeostatic range. By the way, the homeostatic range is the range compatible with survival and preferably survival with well-being. And yet another curious fact, nothing comparable happens within the maps and images that our eyes and ears collect from the external world. Dealing with the body is a special business. Traditional feelings are supposed to be something ethereal, as difficult to pin down as smoke in the air. But nothing could be further from the truth. Feelings are firmly planted in our organisms. And, assisted by the nervous systems, the organisms describe quite graphically, actually, with the help of three-dimensional maps, the state of life within our bodies. Feelings are far more than mere perceptions of the body state. They are blends of body and brain, the consequence of chemical and cellular interactions of bodies and brains. Let's celebrate the wisdom of popular music. In the song, I Won't Dance, Dorothy Fields wrote her famously naughty lyrics. And this feeling isn't purely mental. She was so right. 
Feelings are not just about the mind, they are about the body too. I'm not sure my children would consider those lyrics to be naughty these by exactly. today's standards, but... <laughs> no, they're definitely not naughty, but they are a little naughty. If you hear, uh, say, Fred Astaire sing it, it sounds naughty. Absolutely. But of course, that, that was almost a century ago. I used to think of feelings as a kind of sentimental noise that got in the way of my attempt to rationally navigate the world. You, you were on the way to making them useless. <laughs> well, exactly. No, I, I was, uh, I'm embarrassed to confess, Antonio, that I was on the other side before. I, I, mean, I used to have this sense that, that they were um, a sign of a failure of rationality, yeah. right? That, that if I could not control these feelings, that I was somehow failing to be as rational as I could be. And I've come to see them as more useful signals, partly as a result of, of reading your work. I'm glad. I'm glad to know. But you know, it's it's interesting because you're, of course, you're not alone. You know, there was a time in which it actually and still is. People wanted to suppress their feelings, so they were either useless or actually negative events that you wanted to suppress. And rationality was prized overall. And of course, we want to prize rationality. But the interesting thing is that uh, in order to be very rational and to preserve rationality and to even wish to have more rationality around us, you better have feelings that tell you when rationality is being misused mm. and therefore can guide you into the correct direction. One of the ways in which, as a result of your work and some other work in the area, I have changed the way that I read my own feelings. I'll give you an example. I sometimes get in a mental state, and I, I'm ashamed to say this, Antonio, where I get easily irritated by other people. But I've come to realize that when I get in that state, the only thing that makes me happy is focusing on my work, is you know the re reading of books like yours, uh, building the business that we're building. And I've come to interpret some of these mood shifts as a sign of the intelligence that is in my hybrid mind, both mind and body, mm. that is telling me, you know what, it's time to get to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and there are other very nuanced examples, such as like I might attend a dinner party and have a lovely evening, and I wake up the next morning and I feel a sense of, of embarrassment or shame in a very blurry sort of indistinct way, a visceral way, right? In the viscera. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I'll think back and realize, you know what, I made a comment that was not sensitive and I ignored this other friend and probably hurt their feelings. And so I have learned from this visceral response in my body some intelligence about how I could improve my behavior. Absolutely. You are combining your intelligence, the intelligence that comes from your knowledge and your ability to reason with clarity, with the natural intelligence that uh, comes from your feelings, which is, of course, something that you have inherited from evolution and that is, is there in this interplay between nervous system and the living body. And you're, you're using that older part as material for your rationality to operate and to give you new ideas about what you can do to help you make corrections in your life. In, in how you plan it and how you run it. So I think that's exactly, uh, I'm very happy to hear you say that because that's the kind of blend, that's the kind of encompassing attitude that I think um, good minds have to have. And any kind of extreme where you try to 
get rid of either the rationality or the affective component uh, is not going to lead to a good result because it's incomplete. And nature has provided us with all these possibilities. So why not make the best use of them, which is what you're doing? <laughs> well, and the, and the irony here is that I've had to apply rationality to convince myself to respect visceral feelings, whereas probably homo sapiens have been responding to their visceral feelings for a very long time. And part of what's informed this is we recently had Annie Murphy-Paul on the show, and she wrote this book called The Extended Mind. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. She references you, and she's quite fond of your work. And she writes about a guy at the University of Cambridge named John Coates, who tests how attuned people are to their bodily feelings, which he measures based on their ability to identify their heartbeat, their interoceptive perception, mm -hmm. yep. and has shown that, you, you've probably seen this, that financial traders who are highly attuned to their non-conscious interoceptive signals make better trades. So what's amazing here is that you talk about this two-way communication between the brain and the body. It seems like the brain is actually transmitting information through the body as a kind of signaling medium, right? Because this kind of pattern recognition is obviously not originating in our bodies. It's originating in our brain. Right. But it seems like the brain is sending this pattern recognition or, or this information back through the body, which becomes effectively a medium for information processing almost. Is that right? Right. It makes perfect sense. And that's exactly that. You, I think you put the finger on the right point. So, the, And again, that points to the interplay that I was referring to in this insight that this is not about just the brain perceiving the state of the body. It's about a conversation that goes on between brain and body. So things can come from the body to the brain, and then the brain can analyze them and respond, sometimes in a very elaborate way, sometimes in a simple way. But it's dialogue. That's why I like yeah. several of these words that I use, the blending, commingling, interaction. These are words, I don't want people to think, no, that you just perceive your body. No, you interact with your body. You, you have this dialogue going on, and we're the beneficiaries. By the way, there's something interesting. I heard that uh, George Soros has some story like that where he would have back pain either when trades were not going to be good uh, or they were very good. I can't remember exactly the, the, the direction. Oh, fascinating. But he listened to that back pain signal as a signal that informed his life and obviously with some good results, as we know. Something that's fascinating to me is that our feelings are much less distinct and clear than, say, the messages we get from our visual and auditory systems, right? Right. Where, you know, when we, the things that we see and hear and smell, it's very black and white, right? It's, it's very clear to us, right? Right. Whereas these senses that we have, these feelings of a sense of malaise, right, which I think is from the French, you know, bad mm -hmm. ease, yep. malaise, or loneliness or guilt, or sometimes all three of those feelings at the same time, it's more like an orchestral noise, right? Sometimes beautiful, sometimes cacophonic, discordant. Yeah. I know you love words, Antonio, you know. Um, I think that maybe some hyper-rational people, like my former self, <laughs> would be distrusting of the lack of clarity, right? It just seems sort of vague. And what I was fascinated to read about in your book is that there may be an actual physical, chemical explanation for this in terms of the structure of our communication system, was you describe how in the communication between brain and body, there's something unusual going on. The axons are unmyelinated, mm -hmm. and there's also an absence of a blood-brain barrier. Correct. Um, I'll throw that to you to describe because I'm at the limits of my knowledge there. Well, 
you touched on a very, very important point. So we want to understand how these feelings come about. And one of the, the ways in which we are investigating it is, you know, begins with recognizing that the machinery that is the undergirding of feelings is made of a completely different kind of neuron, much older than the neurons that we use, for example, for vision. The kind of stuff that we use to appreciate the world around us through vision or hearing to things that we're all using right now is very precise. You have these uh, neurons with axons that are extremely well insulated. You, you don't lose any, any, any current. And the signals are very well preserved. I mean, you, you people are audiophiles. You're very concerned with the clarity of your signals. Mm -hmm. Well, the nervous system was worrying about that when it made axons be very protected by myelin. The things that happen with our visceral system the system that collects information from the viscera. The neurons are much older. They were obviously the, the ones that came first in evolution. Uh, they were not protected by a blood-brain barrier. So the blood circulation and a molecule in the blood circulation can immediately interact with that neuron and change the way it's going to fire or not. And so it's a world, once again, of commingling of what belongs to the brain and what belongs to the body. And whereas the brain that is allowing me to put together these thoughts and articulate them to you is a brain that is of a different age evolutionarily and of a completely different structure from the brain that allows me to have pain or that allows me to feel well or feel guilt. And, and, and what's fascinating to me about that is that even though it may be an older and some might say less sophisticated system because of the absence of the blood-brain barrier and the unmyelinated axons, that this would have the effect of providing a generalized assessment of our situation, a gut assessment, as we say, Absolutely. that averages out all the different signals. So if I'm a hunter-gatherer 50,000 years ago and a man walks up out of the forest, I need to make an immediate assessment of like, do I trust this person? There might be all sorts of data and signals that I'm having to read, and I have this gut feeling that I should run mm -hmm. or something, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so this idea that because of this effect, we would have this generalized assessment of our current situation and, it's, and how propitious it is for our opportunity to flourish or retreat, that would seem to be make a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, it's a, a very tightly packed intelligence the same way that you have this highly packed intelligence of a, a simple bacterium, you also have this packed intelligence in this gut response that you just described uh, at a much more complex level, because now we're highly multicellular already, but yet that delivers a result that is very immediate and it may save you. It is the difference between you being killed or not, which is not small potatoes. Or George Soros losing a billion dollars, as the case exactly. might be, right? Because he got the sudden shooting of back pain, yeah. and he unloads a position, and the markets move quickly, right? This feeling isn't purely mental. For heaven rest us, I'm not asbestos, and that's why I won't dance. Why should I? I won't dance. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Rufus, I hear a voice in the background. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm in this space. And and for some reason, they have next to this podcast booth that I'm in a conference room, (laughs) which is not the best. It's a little, it's unmyelinated, this wall. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I'm hearing it almost sounds like children playing. Yes, yes. It's the happy sounds of entrepreneurs building building businesses in lower Manhattan. Oh, <laughs> And so, um, yeah, I could, well, maybe I'll just tip my head in and just let them know that we're recording. Caleb, you think that would be helpful because it's pretty audible? Yeah, I think that that would be nice if they're... Okay, one, one second here. Let, let me see if I can, yeah. Okay, good. I think, I think we will have uh, a slight shift in affect from next door. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Why don't we move on to big idea number two? Feelings are spontaneously conscious. They are the actual beginnings of consciousness in the long history of life, certainly the initiators of consciousness in the evolution of vertebrates like us. Feelings would be of no use to us if they were not conscious. Think of that. When you feel thirsty, you are conscious of that fact. Feeling thirst informs you that the water balance in your organism is off and that knowledge is essential for you to do the next smart thing, which is to drink. The same happens when you have pain. If you have a toothache, you are certainly conscious of that fact. You are being told by your brain that there is a problem in your body and that you should investigate it. In brief, our body can be in a state of good regulation and good harmony or can be lacking in some particular nutrient or water, can be too hot or too cold, or can be in the middle of a COVID infection. Feelings are a major help with the maintenance of homeostasis, the state of harmony of body functions that is required for survival. Instead of simply relying on our automatic regulation of life processes, we can take the advice of feelings. Feelings tell us in no uncertain terms that the body is either in the homeostatic range, the one compatible with the continuation of life, or is deficient in some way. This is a big development in the history of evolution. Creatures without nervous systems, or with simple nervous systems, regulate their life intelligently, but in an automatic, non-conscious way. They do not think. Creatures with elaborate nervous systems, such as we are, enjoy the privilege of another mechanism of life regulation. Thanks to feeling, which really means thanks to consciousness, we have a say in our destiny. You might ask, what about feelings of well-being or feelings of desire? How does the knowledge of those very conscious feelings help us with our lives? Are they a useless luxury? Well, they are not they also provide important knowledge. Feeling well, for example, 
gives you the freedom to pursue activities that have little or nothing to do with curating life in your body. Feeling well gives you some freedom. Combined with skills and curiosity, well-being allows you to be creative in art or business, even in science, if all else fails. As for desire, it may help you find a mate and maintain the species. So, Antonio, I'm not sure if this is the right way to put it, but it sounds like feelings may to some degree help us navigate Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We first need to address the needs that our bodies have to be hydrated, fed, Mm -hmm. kept at a pleasant temperature, and so on. And then it also seems that a sense of social well-being is important to us. We need to feel Mm -hmm. some degree of love and belonging. Once we have this feeling of well-being, however, we're empowered to go and spend these energy reserves that we have doing the fun stuff, pursuing romantic interests, engaging in creative projects that may benefit our communities. We can get to the more elevated human experiences. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's important because, especially when you make this distinction between homeostatic feelings and emotional feelings, which I think is is an important one, you may say, well, homeostatic feelings are all about the bad stuff, all about these uh, alert and dangerous signals. But that's not true. Now, a lot of our homeostatic feelings are actually telling us about well-being and about how nice things are and giving us the possibility of doing other things that can bring you more of the same. So it's signals of well-being are important because they may help you maintain that well-being. And it's not a question of deciding that well-being is more or less important than, than the negative signals. The negative signals, of course, should be regarded as the most important since your life depends on them. But it's really a mixture and uh, it's, it's extremely important information. And I would not have much doubt that that would have been the reason for preserving this because it changed the game in such a way that it allowed for organisms to have... Once you had feelings and you had this range of positive and negative feelings, you were maintaining life for longer periods, obviously, and you were also allowing the rest of the evolving brain to create uh, new stuff that in turn would have made life again longer or better lived. So it's a very compounded way in which feeling contributed to life and uh, it, you know, it had to be adopted, quote unquote, by nature. Evolution had to say, this is good, let's keep it. And you know, I'm struck by, you talk for a few pages in the book about what our feelings tell us about other people. Mm -hmm. And you say betrayal can feel like a stab wound. And then you also say social admiration can be orgasmic, (laughs) which causes me to think that I I need to experience more social admiration. (laughs) I'm not sure sure I've ever quite gotten to the the orgasmic degree. I I, I mean, as as more of a public figure, Antonio, you may have experienced this. But isn't it interesting that I, I would guess that if we polled people on the street and asked them, Tell us about the most powerful feelings you have ever felt in your life. I think most people would, response would be that these were feelings in relation to other people. I mean, for me, it would be at the risk of oversharing. In my sophomore year in college, Antonio, I was dumped by my first love. And I remember laying on the floor of the shower, crying until I could cry no more. I was completely useless. I was unable to focus. I couldn't do anything. 
for two weeks. Two weeks is a long boy. It's a it's a long time. <laughs> I mean, I'm, apparently, my body felt that my future potential uh, as a procreator was at risk. You know, but we also, I think, some of us may remember moments in childhood when you feel rejected by a group of friends and and you feel devastated. Another word would be gutted, mm-hmm. right? That we use it obviously comes from this feeling in our guts. And I find it very interesting that our feelings about other people are sometimes more powerful than our desire to eat. The best explanation I could come up with in my armchair interestedness is that in our ancestral environment, rejection by the group could be fatal. Whereas today, when some kids at a school cafeteria don't let another child sit at their table, that child might feel utterly gutted, but in fact, their life is not threatened, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? But our bodies and brains still allocate huge importance to these social signals. And, and of course, you know, our setting is very different in our, the way we live our lives today, the social structures. I mean, those events have great significance, but they tend not to be fatal. Although, of course, there are plenty of people alive today that are in social situations where uh, rejection can be fatal. We're, of course, the lucky ones because we're very privileged. But at the same time, it, it has also given us an unusual opportunity to appreciate the positive sides of social relations. And this happens, of course, with friendships, and it happens quite notably with um, admiration, for example, for great figures in art. Mm. Music is especially a great example. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's great people in classical music or in jazz or in popular music. Some of these people have become gigantic icons. And that's because there's a very direct way in which we emote positively out of what they produce. And there again, you have this combination of the basic structure of the music that is being played and the skill of the performer. And it's a very, if you really talk about orgastic stuff, that's a very good way to go. You, You have to go to the world of music because that's where you find this great responses. Yes, it might be a little a little late for me, Antonio, to uh, have a future as a rock star. <laughs> but, uh, but I agree with you. Based on what I can see, that is a powerful experience, although many powerful experiences, when repeated, become less powerful. That's true. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> right? So yeah. we have a lot of uh, rock stars don't always uh, necessarily sustain this orgiastic uh, yeah. experience of, of public affirmation. On the other hand, classical musicians do. They have very good <laughs> yeah. staying power. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's probably the better choice. Although probably still a long shot for me. Let's take a quick break. Coming up, Antonio shares his third big idea from feeling and knowing. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back. So Antonio's first big idea is that feelings are as much a physical experience as they are a mental one. His second big idea is that feelings are foundational to our experience of consciousness. Now, in his final big idea, he says our feelings aren't purely internal. They're shaped by the people and things around us. As we go about our daily lives, a continuous stream of images in our minds describes the people we meet, the things we do, and the thoughts we think. Now, here's the insight. The people, the actions, and the thoughts that flow along in our minds affect us. What does that mean? First, it means that the images inevitably and frequently cause some sort of emotion, weak or strong, pleasant or not. Second, that all of those emotions change the state of the body and become emotional feelings. Now, the beauty of those emotional feelings is that they describe the interior of an organism changed by its own thinking they naturally reveal to the mind of that organism that it belongs to the body where the feelings come from. This is really a circus act. The belonging together allows each mind to locate the knowledge conveyed by feelings within its unique body. That is the trick that reveals ownership and turns knowledge into experience, the trick that renders the knowledge conscious in the true sense of the term. In the end, the kind of consciousness that feelings help generate is the only kind of consciousness that we need. It does its job for anything we see or hear or touch because the quote-unquote natural ownership of mind can only be established by the feeling process. Let me make sure I understand. I believe what you're saying is that this sense of ownership of our minds is critical to consciousness. And this arises from a combination of homeostatic feelings of being inside our bodies and this circular communication between brain and body that gives us this sense of possession. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you are getting it right. Let me put it in the context of a, a discussion that is very often ahead when you're talking about consciousness. And that is... Is there a consciousness for every sense that we have? For example, I remember going back a good number of years, Francis Crick, who was a person that I very much admired and uh, who, as you know, did something quite spectacular for science with the discovery of the structure of DNA. Francis Crick, in the later part of his life, was very interested in neuroscience and the curious story is that right at that time, we had had the spectacular development of the understanding of the visual system, and Francis Crick got convinced 
that the way to understand consciousness would actually be through understanding extraceptive systems and understanding vision in particular. So there was there were all of these conversations about visual consciousness. And so we had these long conversations about how vision was going to contribute and the machinery of vision that we now knew from neuroscience was going to be the solution. And this turned out to be wrong, you know, completely wrong. Uh, and it's completely wrong because vision is really about the outside world. You see things, but unless you can hook the things you see to your living organism, you will not have consciousness. It will be a disembodied kind of consciousness. You could, you can imagine seeing the world around you, what you hear, what you see, and it's not connected with you, which is really a bizarre idea. But of course, it would happen mm -hmm. if you did not have feeling, if you did not have a sense of your body, and if you could not hook anything that you see or hear or touch or smell to that central body that constitutes the basis for yourself. If you have the reference to your organism, then anything that comes your way, whether it's a song that you hear or a smell or a taste, can be referred to your body. That's all you need. You don't need visual consciousness or auditory consciousness or smelling consciousness. You just need to have the core self and anything can then be referred to it, which turns out to be a very economic solution. You know, I'm willing to bet that this idea is correct, and that's it. I'll bet a good bottle of red wine. <laughs> well, you're betting your book on it as well. The, the, um, I bet my book too. <laughs> yeah. When you look at the breadth of theories of consciousness today, how mainstream versus outside the mainstream would be your claim that our feelings are effectively the bed within which consciousness sits? I think, well, I don't know about mainstream, um, but certainly is not the most popular view. But it's not the most popular view because it hasn't had many cultists, and I hope that it will become a more popular view. I myself have never decided to go out there and beat the bushes and proclaim that uh, this needs to be heard. I think if it is true, sooner or later people will fall in this camp. Uh, I know all the players in this field, and I have a great respect for many of their ideas, you know. I have the impression that they have largely gone the way of the outside world. They have been persuaded by the tremendous show that is our extraception, and they have been convinced that that's, that's where the answer must be, because in the end, as you yourself have realized in this conversation, that's what dominates. For most people, what dominates the conscious moment is what you see, what you hear, and for those who are great chefs or great parfumiers, what you smell and what you taste. Other than that, you know, people are not... You, you, you need to work at it to think about your feelings. And I think that, interestingly, we live in a culture now that is paying more attention to feelings. So maybe 20 years from now, this will be easy and all talked about, and there won't be any controversy. But no, I don't think that I am the most popular view. And quite frankly, I think I should. How about that? <laughs> well, to me, your explanation is the most intuitive. But channeling some of these other sort of skeptics, 
they might say, I mean, so the question has been posed by Chalmers and others, why does consciousness feel like something, right? Um, why should it feel like something at all? To which you say feelings came first. Yep. This feeling of being in a body is an ancient precursor to consciousness. And, and so to take another step back, one might ask, why do feelings feel like something? By which I mean, if feelings are fundamentally a signal, I'm hungry, or I need to, you know, use the bathroom, or whatever it is. A signal could be a blinking warning light on the dashboard of a car, or <laughs> there are lots of different kinds of signals, right? That are, and I guess one might say, why do we experience it as this kind of orchestral symphony of feelings? Is this the most efficient form of signal, or it just simply happens to be the one that natural selection landed on? Actually, both. First, natural selection ended up with it because it was so convenient. And that convenience, given the structure of our bodies, also tells you why they have to be so diversified. Because what you feel is so different. If you're feeling something that has to do with your skin and you have an itch, or if you're feeling something that has to do with your guts, or uh, you know all the variety of feelings that you may have, are tied to body functions, to body operations. So you have all of these elements. A bad engineer would have given you only one kind of signal that wouldn't tell you what you needed to know. What we end up, and nature did it beautifully, is feelings that correspond actually to different parts of the body and that tell you immediately, I mean, there's no mistake, the pain that you can have with a myocardial infarction, mm -hmm. giving you a great signal, go to the hospital, quick. And so the signals are diversified because our organisms are highly diversified and they're, they're informing us about all of those different possibilities. So I think it's actually extremely clever and extremely efficient, and that's obviously why it has been preserved. And then it's interesting that you borrowed from this catalog of possibilities, this menu, to create feelings that have to do with our social relations. So feelings that have to do with our being um, in joy or in sadness or uh, liking other people or not, you borrow this. The same way that consciousness borrows the core body and the core feeling as the hook for it to be connected. We borrow feelings to go out into the world and to give nuances to our appreciation of what it is to be with another human being mm -hmm. uh, or many human beings and to run our social life, even our political life. So it's a very interesting give and take and it goes in multiple directions. I mean, it strikes me that one possible explanation for why so many of these of your brilliant colleagues have bypassed this centrality of feelings and consciousness might be related to all of our fascination in the last 30, 40 years with the emergence of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. right? And we've all been very focused on kind of these computational, ever-increasing acceleration of computational power and how that can manifest itself in these, you know, um, machine learning. And so I would posit that the hard problem of consciousness may indeed be a hard problem in the sense that brains built out of hard substances like silicon and transistors may indeed have an intractable problem with attaining consciousness. But we humans are not hard. We're soft, <laughs> right? As you point out in the book. Exactly. No, you're absolutely on the right track. I think that if you put yourself in a perspective of a pure AI, 
then this is all not only inefficient, which obviously it isn't, but it's intractable. Uh, and you have to have a different setting in order to resolve the problem. And that, by the way, if I can interject, uh, you probably know about some work that we have done here yes. on a proposal uh, on to have artificial intelligence go soft. So, you know, the idea that we could potentially make robots more clever if we use soft robotics and if they were, if paradoxically we would introduce vulnerability where right now we have complete solidity and impermeable structures. And that goes exactly to the point that you're making. There's something about us that is related to the qualities and to the softness and the vulnerability that is, of course, inconvenient because, of course, you can get sick and die. Uh, but at the same time, it also produces this amazing intelligence. And guess what? We are intelligent in our human way because we are conscious. And we are conscious because we are vulnerable. Because if that came from feelings, that is our great armament against that vulnerability. And so your paper, I think, was titled Homeostasis and Soft Robotics in the Design of Feeling Machines. And, Correct. And so is this proposal to actually help people build machines that can feel? And do you think that if that is successful over time, might that lead to helping a computer AI attain consciousness through a, the building of a feeling machine? Theoretically, yes to all your questions, but one has to be very prudent and very modest. The, the idea, you know, we, we're not thinking that a robot e equipped with some sensors that would make it, quote-unquote, more in the direction of vulnerable would give it feeling in the proper sense. Uh, after all, we're dealing with a non-living device. So the possibility of it having feeling in the way that you and I have is, of course, zero. But it might give certain clues to that intelligence that would make it more uh, <laughs> cuddly and friendly in the sense that it might appear to behave more like we do. And potentially, that might be the source of new developments. Because there's no question that what artificial intelligence can do is spectacular, has been spectacular, but it's lacking something, which also is obvious. So that might be it. Well, I think it's so interesting that we may have forgotten in recent decades in our exuberance about Moore's Law and this explosion of machine intelligence that we are squishy, vulnerable <laughs> creatures that, that have evolved over billions of years. And that those vulnerabilities and these feelings that emerged from our desire to hopefully maintain homeostasis so that we can survive maybe just totally fundamental to our experience of being inside our bodies. It, it, it's all so, so very interesting. You know, I'd be interested in finishing with some reflections on how we squishy, humble, fabulously beautiful humans can better navigate the world. <laughs> we, we had Steven Pinker on the show recently talking about the importance of rationality. What would you say to, to Steve about the limits of rationality? Should we have a sense of humility about our capacity to be rational? What can we do to help our prefrontal cortex be as successful as possible at interacting with this ocean of feelings we all carry around in our bodies? I haven't read his latest book, but I have the impression that Steve has a pretty good measure of the limits of rationality, at least this one. Yes, I, yes, he does. I think he's, he's actually very balanced. And I think he 
he would recognize that there are numerous circumstances in which rationality per se fails. But still, the, the way I think he places it, and I would be in agreement, uh, it, we need to foster it, and probably no, no more vehemently than at a moment historically in which we are behaving in such irrational ways in our cultures. So we need to have um, proper information, proper screening of ideas. And interestingly, I think that the world of affect helps you screen the ideas. There, there are certain things that are so horribly stupid as rational decisions that we will recoil from them effectively. In other words, we, we look at certain ideas with horror. And horror is, of course, part of our effective reaction. And so I, I think that effect is helping rationality. I think the two things are, are you know, adjoined. And do you see in the culture in recent decades, is there a danger to not fully appreciating the centrality of feelings and emotions to how we think and behave? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that the, there's a, very often a blind trust, for example, in the, in the artificial manipulation of intelligence uh, and a blind trust in what is uh, rational and uh, allegedly very objective and incontrovertible and so forth, uh, which I think is dangerous. Yeah. And when that permeates a culture, you end up in not such good places. You need to have this sense of vulnerability if you're going to figure into have a healthy culture. Well, my takeaway from your book in this conversation is that we um, that our affective responses are critical tools in our interaction with the world, but we can control them or at least we can direct them with our rational faculties, which is interesting because it's kind of the inverse of the great Hume quote that rationality serves at the service of the passions. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Antonio, what I so enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your reading of detective novels, if you still read detective novels, and your uh, reading and writing and enjoying of the California Hills to be with us today. I've so enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for taking the time to invite me, and I'm glad that uh, you guys liked the book. Want to hear one more big idea from Feeling and Knowing? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Antonio's book bite. And don't stop there. In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of other brilliant new books, mind-blowing e-courses, and Zoom discussions with our curators, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Daniel Pink. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like this show, leave us a review at a five-star rating, if you think we've earned it. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, The Wondery app, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Thank you for supporting them. Special thanks to Antonio Damasio. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Boy.